0: In this episode of the Australian Investors Podcast, I'm joined by my co host on the Australian Property Podcast, Amy Lenardi, a highly experienced buyer's agent from Melbourne, and Rebecca Morgan, the founder of Build Her Collective. Build Her Collective is a property platform designed to educate people on how to do things like buy, build, and invest in property. Rebecca's community has expanded to over 120,000 people and includes courses, media, groups, and so much more. You may have seen her on many of the popular television shows sharing her wisdom and experience. In this discussion, Amy and I talk to Rebecca about what goes into developing a property for profit, whether that's a single renovation on your home or whether you're developing land and need to get together a syndicate to invest in something much larger and much complex. This is a fantastic episode for anyone looking to make a foray into property, whether you're just starting out or much further down the road. If you like this episode of the Australian Investors Podcast, be sure to check out the Australian Property Podcast. Just like Drew and I going live every Saturday morning, Pete Wargent and Chris Bates also go live on the Australian Property Podcast every Sunday morning at 7am, and that's called Two Cents Property. Without further ado, here's Rebecca Morgan and Amy Linardi. Amy, welcome to this very special episode of the Australian Property Podcast. Hello, Owen. Good morning. Yes, the audio quality is improved, so people may notice that. And it's because we are recording in person, we have a very special guest. Rebecca, welcome to the Australian Property Podcast.
1: Thank you. Hello.
0: Hello. Uh, made the trek into Melbourne to record
1: <gasps> oh, with us. Oh. Amazing, brave the city for this. Living the dream out in rural. <laughs> I'm going to call it rural
2: Victoria, but it's not actually. It's still Melbourne. It's metro. like 10
1: minutes from coffee in four different directions. It's not that rural, but <laughs> it is actually. The post box said I was rural this week.
0: <laughs> maybe that has some uh, benefits or maybe drawbacks from a development perspective. Maybe. Yeah. But we're going to cover um, the business that you've built, uh, property development, renovations, and everything in between. Mm-hmm. Um, Amy, you've. Podcasted with Rebecca before. Maybe I'll let you do the the intro and take it from here.
2: Yes. Well, Rebecca is actually I'll call her my mentor. I don't know if you've ever heard me call you that before, but <laughs> <laughs> no, but I'll take it. Um, <laughs> you know, I've I've been um, you know working in the property industry for for ten years and have purchased investment properties over the years, but have only really got into renovating and developing relatively more recently. Yeah. And I wish that I had come across. Rebecca and her business as a resource when I first started because it has been invaluable to me with the support and knowledge along the way. And I think that this episode is going to be quite popular because whether or not renovating or developing is something that you can or want to do right now, Mm. everyone loves talking about it and hearing about it and hearing that it is actually maybe more accessible to regular people than it seems. And, you know, we think of developers as maybe, you know, mid to larger size companies and massive projects. But the reality is there's a lot of more small scale stuff happening. And that's what your business is is more targeted to. So tell us a little bit about what you do and how you, how you help people.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I didn't start out thinking I would teach people how to renovate for profit or develop because like most people, I have the same opinion of developers. They kind of middle-aged men that kind of grumpily boss everyone around and don't listen to anything. It's kind of like the same thing we all, you know, this developer is evil kind of mentality that I think we have as Australians, Like really it's just a, mm. um, it's one of those bias, I guess. Um, but I did start helping people renovate their own homes because I'm a registered builder. I had done, I actually came from construction, Um, so commercial construction into domestic building and it was really tricky to make that transition. Um, Knew a lot about building obviously but domestically or on houses such a different Mm -hmm. game. People don't turn up, no one does what they're meant to do, you've got to guide them in a really different way and so when I decided to transition and I did that because I wanted to have a family and a topic for another day but I think the commercial construction industry is quite tricky for women you lose a lot of them in their 30s when they want to start having families and spend time with them so I yeah I transitioned residentially and it and I had to create a process of being able to manage all of these things and then we were building um my husband and I John a, we were building around I guess around Northcote and we had a whole people people approach us and say can you help us we don't know what to do or we're in this situation with the builder or we're in this situation and once you're in a tricky situation on a build it's really hard to get out of so what we like to do is avoid it and no one thinks they'll end up there everyone thinks oh this is going to be rosy I've hired a great builder what could go wrong and they don't also realize that often they're a problem Mm. so sometimes it's like well hang on what did you say to them all right, well, I can see why they've got their backup. And so you've got to teach almost communication at a different level and understanding of the process and the industry. Um, Anyway, so people kept on coming to me with their problems and I thought, actually, there's no one resource that people can go to and say, well, how do I do this for my project? And that could be one of a number of things. So it could be hiring an architect, it could be using a draftsperson, it could be using an interior designer, there's so many, or a volume builder. There's so many different pathways and all these pathways are right for different people. So what I wanted to do and what we created with Build Her initially was a um, a map of this is the way through the building process. These are all of your different options. And just because your brothers, mothers, sisters used a builder doesn't mean that they're gonna be a really good fit for you. Um, and from there, I guess we kind of rolled into teaching people how to renovate or develop for profit because that's what we were doing. And- well you know, it's fair to say asked. that
2: you're you created this reputation in the inner north for building and renovating these beautiful houses. And this was right at the start of the time where, you know, there was a lot of um the, the inner north hadn't experienced products like you were creating. They were beautiful, beautifully renovated homes. And we're talking about multi-million dollar projects. And you you did create this reputation for yourself in the inner north as um, people who did special, unique properties that were selling for great profits.
1: Yeah, I guess at that point in time it was very much build a box on the back of a house and, mm. you know, do it as cheaply and as quickly as you can. And look, one of the builders, because we've got, a, you know, I'm very good at asking people for help So <laughs> and and for having conversations with people and say, well, how did you do that? You know, is there a way? And whereas I think people want to have that You know I know everything but because I'd ask a lot of people we knew a lot of builders in the area um and you know I knew that some of them had bought kind of like 10 years worth of tiles that they were just throwing out rolling out into the projects they were really trying to hit do it as cheaply as possible to hit make a market but we're selling family homes Mm. It, you know, you don't want to live in a product that's as cheap as possible. You don't want to live in a product that looks exactly the same as everyone else. So I guess where we started was John and I had a vision of being able to create a unique family home. And now, look, eight years on probably from our first bigger project, we had done some smaller ones and we made a massive pile of mistakes along the way, as you always do, Um and eight years on onto that kind of first one where we went, no, we're going to do this. And everyone said, no way, you're going to have to hold it for 10 years. You've overcapitalized. How many times do people tell you you've overcapitalized? Can't see this selling. Definitely overcapitalized. You know, we look at it and we go, okay, well, there's a definite market for, for quality product. Mm.
0: Do you think that uh, – so you've, you've, we've built a community around this. So I'm guessing the answer is yes. Can people that don't have a background like you – in do what, yeah, yeah, do yeah, what yeah.
1: you do. Yeah, of course. I think, you know, like there's this is I think we cater to women, so build her collective, so mm-hmm. it is for women. And the reason why it's for women is because what I have found in a lot of cases is that women are more invested in the home environment than men. Mm. Um, I'll probably get crucified for that, but it's kind of like... I I, I think that's true as well. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so women buy houses often too. They'll fall in love with something. They'll pay more because it's an emotional thing and they're looking at it in the value that it brings over the next 20 years Mm. rather than, you know, a, a financial transaction just at this point in time. So they're who we're building for. That being said, if you know the market we're building for, and you can understand the building process. And the building process is really just organising a whole heap of things to happen and understanding the value proposition and putting that together. You can build a house. So women also seem to be in roles where they're juggling and organising a massive amount of things at one amount of time. And so I always say if you can get your kids in the car and to school on time, you can probably manage a building project. Hmm. It's slightly less complex. (laughs) <laughs> and you still need to have
2: the the funds to do it. So we're not talking about um again, you know doing five to ten townhouses at a time or a yeah. huge apartment block. when we're saying, you know can regular people do this?" Um, you can start off by doing a renovation. Mm-hmm. And then work your way up from there. Like that's what I've yeah. done over time. I've slowly built up my 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 skills and finances along the way. But I completely agree with you, Rebecca. When I'm helping people buy properties, we see a lot of townhouses, which I'll call cookie cutter, or they're townhouses where I say, wow, this has been built recently and yet they're using the design from three years ago because that developer's just pumping out the same yeah. thing and not using any innovation or it doesn't make sense that they've – uh, designed the kitchen in this way that's not functional and why is there no powder room on the ground floor things like that and when you're approaching this from a perspective of not not only just a woman but someone who knows how to live in a house and yeah. who's not just designing it in a way that's maximizing or mis minimizing the cost because maximizing profit is not just about minimizing the cost mm. it's also about maximizing the resale potential on the other end and it's a combination of both and that's what your community um teachers and supports and helps with and not only do you have the online courses but what i've got a lot of value and maybe the most value out of is the community on facebook and getting into that and saying how do i fix this floor plan how do i get this type of trade or i'm in this predicament i've i'm i've got this problem with a builder what do i do and that support network has been phenomenal
1: well, you had one of those situations where you, you'd you drawn a couple of lines on a plan and you were like, well, do you like this one or this one? And I was able to look at it and say, okay, well, you get an extra 60 centimetres worth of, you know, robe space really at that point, um, but it's going to cost you an extra 50 grand because now we're going to have to move this structural wall. We've got a roof line lining up on it. And, you know, if you put this these two, I guess, boxes that were going outside if you join them together you've now got less external wall and you can kind of work through the solutions but if no one points that out to you and what people tend to do is they'll go to a draftsperson or an architect and they'll do what you ask them to do Mm. you're just not educated in what you're asking them for so you're not guiding the outcome ask the wrong questions and get the
2: wrong answers
1: right so you get a lot of that type of thing um the money thing So you can do it on your own home. You can do a project which is smaller or you can band together. Like I started with joint ventures. So I pulled money with my sister and we were able to buy a house and we renovated that and then we took the money out of that to do something else. So, you know, I think everyone thinks we've got to get to this point where we've got a huge pile of money and, you know, in the future that's going to happen, but I don't ever see that happening. It's not easy to build and renovate now. It's not easy to build and renovate, or it wasn't, 10 years ago. 10 years ago, I was having the same conversations as I'm having now. The cost of building is stupid. It's too hmm. much. How expensive is it to buy land? If I had have done this 10 years ago, I'd be sitting pretty. And in 10 years' time, we'll be
2: looking having back and saying, "Wish we bought in 2023. Well, how do, how do people usually finance a renovation or a build and what are some alternatives to someone just doing it? by
1: themselves yeah okay so I mean finance is an interesting one because it all depends on your situation but you've got things like equity finance or withdrawing equity out of a property you've got things like if it's a development you can do development finance you can use joint ventures you can use And what does um, a joint venture involve uh, a joint venture might be two parties or more parties coming together to do something together. So you can structure that in a number of ways and I think the interesting thing is there are so many different ways mm. you can do that. So, you know, you can and I have put together joint ventures where I haven't put any money in. So I've bought, you know, four people into a project and they've put the cash in and we've been able to renovate and build and develop and I've done that a number of times and you're using skill or the the fact that you can find a project. Now, is that for everyone? No, that's hard. Yeah? It's probably easier once you've built up a reputation of being able to do it. But it's not it's not what everyone can walk off the street and do. Mm. There's time and there's money. And if you've got money, it makes the process easier. If you don't have money and you need to build that from somewhere, you've got to put the time in. That can be harder, but it's what you get out of it. You know, so sell the joint ventures or JVs type thing where you're taking a a house that's about to hit the market and you know that if you did a small renovation on it, say 50, 100 grand on it, did that tart up, you would then get a return of 300, but you can't afford to do that. So that might be the example of a seller JV. So one party will come in and provide that 50 grand, that 100 grand and renovate the property. The other person has the project or you can structure it a number ways. so it could be 50 50 on the cash and then when they sell they split the profit of that so it's good for both parties but is that an easy scenario to find not really like honestly and think financing rebecca it's it's important to think about at the beginning because
2: i will often have investor clients approach me and say Mm -hmm. i want to buy a property that has development potential Mm -hmm. And I will say, that's fine, that's great, but how do you plan on developing that property? How do you plan on financing it in the future? What will happen if you do decide to uh, develop it in 10 years' time but you can't afford to do so? Or planning regulations change in the meantime because they can sometimes change and then that Mm -hmm. site is no longer feasible and they'll say, well, I, I didn't think about those things and then in which case they might be compromising on that investment by buying in an area which has less growth potential just because they need more land and just not considering the longer term implications.
1: Uh, So I don't subscribe to one blanket case. Like this is one size fits all. You can go out with a set of numbers and you're going to make a 20% return no matter what you do. And I don't think that people should be preaching that, to be honest, because it's not realistic. Like there's not these holy grail of numbers that you can just go hit. Um, when it comes to finance and things like that, if you can hold that land and you've got something with development potential and you've got enough equity in it, well, you can get development finance if you know what you're doing. And it doesn't rely on income, but what it does rely on is a good feasibility. So you've got to know how to put together a feasibility. You've got to know your sales values, what you're looking at. And a feasibility is essentially a breakdown of how much is that development going to cost and what are the potential
2: resales? And all of those numbers are very clearly laid out. Yeah. And and also double-checked. <laughs> but it's not hard to put together either, right? Well, says someone who does it every day. For, <laughs> and so says someone who stays up all night doing them because you love doing them as well.
0: <laughs> I was going to ask um, a question with regards to the joint venture because I imagine a lot of people listening to this would think, well, I can maybe pull some money together with a friend or a family member, kind of yeah. like what you did. And uh, maybe they do have some skills, maybe they don't. I've seen mistakes happen here because of the relationships breakdown, mm-hmm. so are there some steps that people can put in place maybe before they even you know think about making a, an offer or doing something like this to protect themselves and their relationships?
1: yeah, for sure. I mean joint venture you know everything's great until money's involved I think mm. um, and joint ventures can be amazing and they can be a complete minefield and um, I've had joint ventures go really well and I've had joint ventures that have been tedious to wrap up and even when they've made a, good, a really good profit, they've been more tedious to wrap up because then everyone wants a piece of that pie. Mm. However, um, if you're doing it, because there are so many different structures, I think, okay, so firstly, you need to understand what you're going into. You need to know the feasibility of the project. You need to understand what the process is, who's going to understand what part, what the roles are and what the expectations are you also need to understand that they won't go to plan. (laughs) Um, And they never do, right? So if I say I'm going to buy this block and we're going to go through planning um, and it's going to take a year, well, what happens if I go to VCAT? I don't, well, you know, like there are all these unknown things that can happen during that project. So you need to have an understanding of what that is. What happens if someone's spouse is injured or sick Mm -hmm. or they decide Mm -hmm. to move overseas? Someone needs those funds a lot they faster. They need those funds faster, yeah. right? So all of these things need to be worked out in an actual agreement and that agreement needs to be drawn by um, a lawyer or someone who's going to protect your both persons, rights. So you both need to have independent advice coming into that. And so did I do that with my sister? No, <laughs> no. I mean, look, I think most people do joint ventures without that. Um, you need to understand your relationships with people and and understand what your risk is and then work out how to mitigate it because joint ventures can be amazing but they can also be really tricky what are a couple
2: of misconceptions with building and renovating and
1: developing for profit that you think are out there Oh yeah, that's a good one. So an easy one for that is subdivision always makes money. Mm. Right? Yes. If I if I, you know, if I subdivide this block, it's going to be way better than if I have two houses or oh, one house, houses, yeah. for example. Mm. And that doesn't work. So I've seen and this is where running through the feasibility is really helpful. Mm. I've seen people get all the way through council and they've got these plans and permits for two like townhouses on a block and by the time you put the input of the land and the input of the land at today's value not when you bought it 20 years ago or 15 years ago or 10 years ago oh, or even one year ago or one case. year ago today's value of that land and then you add the input of the construction and the holding and the interest and the sale cost all of that together you need to be able to make a profit and if you don't do that calculation, which may suit you because you don't want to know the outcome. But but you you don't want to go backwards. So another, yeah. You
2: helped me with I had this exact conundrum where we purchased a block of land, we bought it really well off market at a great Mm -hmm. time and by the time it came to consider doing the subdivision and putting everything through council, the land had gone up quite significantly, and we were in a position where we could either sell that land for a pretty tidy profit at that point mm-hmm. in time. The market was doing very well. We could have renovated the house, not have to go through council again, or we could have subdivided and gone through with those plans. And Rebecca helped, and you know, we 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 did a big Zoom session with mm-hmm. a lot of Build Her members where we talked about the pros and cons. And it wasn't only financial, but it was also for me going through that process and learning the process and, and doing it. And I for me, that was an intangible value that I would get at the end, but that's not going to be relevant for everyone. Um, but it ended up being that the outcomes were probably going to be pretty similar. And the risk for the second option was a lot higher.
1: And the funds required, and the funds required
2: were a lot higher. But for me, the value of going through the process and learning about it um ultimately made me decide it but it's not always that clear cut and you're right it's not always a case of just making more money by adding more be- by putting more dwellings mm. on a piece of land because you've got opportunity cost you've got the, the holding costs, which for us we had delays that project has cost us an extra sixty thousand dollars than it should mm. have because of delays with council Um, So it's not always black and white. And it's very hard when you're talking about future values and making predictions because you can only make uh, assumptions based on today's resale prices, but we're talking about with a subdivision
1: selling in maybe two years. Yeah, Mm. but you can only base it on today's prices. Like Mm. you, you don't know tomorrow's prices, so the feasibility has to stack up today. Mm. And not rely on growth over that period of time because what people don't do is add the growth of the land. So they're not comparing apples with apples. So if you do it at today's values, I think you you win. I think there's another, you know, there's always family values that roll into this. It's like, does one person want to supplement their income to and do a project? So, mm. okay, let's take a, a husband-wife couple and let's go really generic. Um, and let's go. The husband's at work and the wife has been at work, now they're at home with kids. They want to do something to supplement their income, something to busy, you know, be, be involved, add financially, but they don't want to go back to the kind of nine to five and working within set hours. Well, that's where that renovating for profit and doing kind of one project at a time where you can see 100, 200, you know, 500 uplift, depending on what you're looking at. Will be worth it. Now, is it worth it for that person to make a hundred thousand dollars over a year and stay home with their kids while you know doing a project which they feel is fun and creative? Well, possibly. Do the numbers stack up as a twenty percent return? Possibly not. Mm. You know, so we always juggle values, what we're doing with our time, and the returns. I think. I think that's
2: another misconception too. Is that developing? Oh, sorry, renovating will always make profit too. And Owen, oh, we had a mm. we had an episode recently together where we talked about adding value and it's all well and good for someone to look at a renovation and see what that property sold for and then they'll Google the land and they'll say, Okay, well they they sold it for this, they bought it for this. A renovation might have costed X, but they forget about all of the other costs involved, the cost of stamp duty, the interest repayments on that land, the opportunity cost. What could that person have gone and done with their time and money elsewhere and how much could that have returned. And also this is this is very relevant. How much has that market grown since the time you purchased that block of land or that property and when you sold it? Because you've got to attribute some of that resale to capital growth if growth has happened over that time. And once you take all of those things away and add on tax, the mar- the profit on paper can be a lot less, but it doesn't look that way for someone who's going into it a little bit less educated. Yeah.
0: Yeah. All they say is buy and sell.
1: Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly yeah. right. And not the journey in between. <laughs> so. And all the real estate agents will tell you is the buy and sell. Oh, you could buy this for this and, and you could sell it for this. And you're like, well, yeah, but like there's there's a little process in between. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I find they don't stack up either.
0: <laughs> How do you... Uh, so let's imagine uh, someone that is attempting to develop for the first time or thinking about it. Um, what are some of the major, like rocks or costs that go into it? The hurdles that you face, like just at a high level, if someone is completely new to it, obviously we're going to tell them to go to the website and check out the group and all this yeah, sort of stuff. Yeah, obviously. But, <laughs> but uh, like, what are the things people should consider? Like what are the things that people maybe don't often plan for?
1: Okay, so firstly, we have a free. Feasibility template, if Great. that's okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah So absolutely. you can go to our website, builthercollective.com.au. go to the freebies section, there's a template, Great. feasibility, Yeah. right? doesn't give you what numbers to input, but it does give you the start point. So use that as a checklist. So it has a section called planning. Do you need to go through town planning? Do you need to add, you know, an architect's fee to do that? Or will you mm. use it Does you know a uh, draftsperson, what are your inputs? So when you're kind of working through it, you need to understand your process. Are you doing it as an owner builder? Are you doing it uh, hiring a high-end builder? And what does owner builder mean? Uh, owner builder means uh, that you're doing the work or managing the trades yourself. Effectively, an owner builder takes on the role of a qualified builder. Um, and whilst that works for some people, it's not something that I recommend for most people because you need to, the, the liability Mm. Is exactly the same on you as a builder who's had to qualify, study, and register. No difference, mm. Mm. right? So, if you want to do owner builder, it's within your right, but you need to understand all the regulations and all to of the do risks. that, mm. and all the risk, right? And you're liable for that project once you sell. Yeah, so once mm. you sell, and the idea behind owner builder is that you're not selling; that everyone has the right to improve their property to a certain standard and to be able to do that. So that's mm. the idea between. Uh, uh, in Victoria for the VBA. That's why we have that owner builder in there. But what they've done is restrict it. So you can only do one every five years. You can't do a subdivision on an owner builder because they're really trying to get people to do it for their own house as a right and not use it as a way to bypass the building process. Yeah. Um, so, sorry, sidetracked on that. But <laughs> <laughs> I think it's also important to understand that, you know, these side processes so where we think we're being really clever and short-cutting actually can come back and bite you because if you don't do the drainage, like let's say you didn't put the fall away from a property, here's, here's some risk for you. Let's say you don't put the fall away from the property and for some reason you have decided to build a garden bed next to the house which looks really pretty and that channels all that water underneath your substructure, yeah? Mm. And you've got a clay soil and those stumps are starting to get you know wet and dry, wet and dry, and it fills up with water under the house Uh, It's got no way to dry because it doesn't have adequate ventilation. Clay eventually will start getting slippy and not be able to hold, um, you know, give any bearing. So at that point, you're starting to get movement in the house. You are liable for that Mm. if you have done that work and you haven't followed the process. And by followed the process, I don't mind done it. I don't mean do it structurally in accordance with the plans, which that would be on the plans. But it's a little note that if you don't know, you would miss, yeah. right? So that's what I mean by that. So, yeah, so just it's you like need when to... You're, und- if you're trying to manage your property yourself instead of using a property manager.
2: In theory, yes, you can do it, but there are so many um, small little bits of regulation mm-hmm. and paperwork and things where if you miss one thing, and it's fine if things go right and if things yeah. go to plan, nothing goes wrong, but if something goes to wrong, you end up at VCAT or your tribunal in whichever state you're at and you've missed something, mm-hmm. then that's where it can... back to bite you so it's um yeah Yeah. it's it's you by by cut by bypassing things and trying to save costs you're you need to have so much extra time and energy put into protecting yourself and knowing yeah. the process at the beginning we'll so, which is a really
1: good trade maybe who knows what they're doing back to your pro your your actual question which is about feasibility <laughs> uh, which is what would you do you would understand your feasibility you understand how you're going to deliver the project you'll understand how you're going to fund the project all of the costs are going to it and that includes the buying the stamp duties the sale costs the marketing fees all of that um, and then you will work out whether it makes a profit Mm. And at that point, you can say, yes, this would be a good investment or not. Now, do I find there's a shortage of good investments? No. No, there are so many projects that stack up. But you need to know what to look for. And often, here's a nice tip, often the thing to look for isn't the pretty little Victorian house that everyone's like, oh, isn't it cute? I could just renovate this because they'll pay more Mm. for that kind of curb appeal and feel like it's cheaper to renovate than and not understand that actually if you go into that, you're going to have to replace everything. You're going to strip it all back. You're going to re-stump. You're going to go again, basically, whereas the one two doors down that's pretty ugly from the front, if you change that, you might make more money because that's got, you know, I guess, value add.
0: And Mm. the purchase price will probably be lower too.
1: Right, Mm. exactly. So that purchase price is, you know, the emotion of having that. And when you're selling so here's a tip on selling so when you're selling a house you are selling someone's dream mm. they are you're selling the feeling the feeling mm. you're selling the the idea that their life is going to get markedly better when they live in this home and so isn't that great because now we're in psychology we're not in building and sales we're mm. we're thinking about okay well what can i put in this house to make someone come in here and go oh my gosh i have to live here my life would be complete and go through the pain that is getting finance (laughs) (laughs) at the moment and packing up their house and moving house and selling their house and potentially moving suburb and working out a whole new way of things working. So you need to overcome that. And so I think it's fair to say that some of the projects that you've done, Rebecca, have probably
2: been bought or bid on or at least inspected by people who weren't actually considering buying at that time. Mm -hmm. But uh, we're tempted to buy, maybe that they've seen it on Instagram or online or the agent has approached them. And that type of project to appeal to someone that wasn't already planning on selling, that's, that's something that's really going to be incredibly desirable for that person to consider upending that life at that point in time. And those are the products that you've created over time. And we're talking about towards the top end of the market here, Owen, in these particular markets right. that you've sold or somewhere towards the top, but you don't have to be.
1: Yeah, those ones are. There's been some ones kind of, well, look, you know, like it is an expensive market where I'm playing and that's because, you know, people are like, oh, if you don't, it has changed very recently. But normally up until last year we were five minutes from home was as far as we'd go to renovate and build because it's a cost on our family, that kind of moving back and forth between sites. And it is all-encompassing when you're renovating. Um And no one wants to hear about your renovations unless they're going through a renovation, (laughs) by the way. Just in case you think that that's like a conversation you can have with your bestie (laughs) ongoingly, probably not unless they're doing it. I'll listen. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, of course. But, yeah, so so I think putting thought and process into it. So even if you're hitting into a mid-level, let's take the townhouse example you had before. And we do a lot of interior work, interior design work now actually for developers. And we do you did my designs. Yeah, I did your designs. Um, and I do that because I think the base level is getting better, but it doesn't have to cost an arm and a leg more. Although those outside tiles, Amy. Um, (laughs) I really like them. (laughs) Um, But it doesn't have to cost an arm and a leg more to make something look beautiful. It Mm. just needs to be considered. It's no longer okay to just throw in, you know, red brick, black windows, timber, you know, white cabinetry. Like you can make something feel like a home and cost the same amount because all of those materials were still going to be needed. Well, you can find duplicates of um, high-end products for cheaper, just like when you're you know, going
2: shopping to find an outfit and yeah. find a similar product. Maybe it's not going to be as good quality, but that not, might not matter if you're selling that property anyway.
1: Yeah, and I think the thing is like, there's, there's a limited difference between high-end and desirable and a midway point as well. Right. Although so, there's a
2: massive gap between high-end and low-end as you create a huge gap there.
1: In the market and what you're selling. selling. And the cost, yeah. Yeah, there, there is, but a lot of this comes down to, and I'm sorry, I'm going more technical, but a lot of this comes down to basically understanding the material cost and the labour cost. The so labour cost, if you use a simple process. So where interior designers, I think, struggle a little bit is they put things in that are really hard to build. Mm. And so that's time and they've got to work out, well, where do I get that turned end that I'm going to put on that bench? I've never done that before. Or now I've got to find some steel and weld it up in this circular shape and I don't have someone that I go to mm. that does that. Um, whereas if you use a simple process and nice materials, I think you can kind of move to that next level and kind of combat the labour was going to be the same. We were always going to have that labour cost. So now we're supplementing that material. and. A little bit of variation there and maybe you don't tile all the walls but you tile to a oh, certain so yeah. point or you know like you you measure your approach with that.
2: Well here's a question for you and I know the answer to this but I'm, I'm going to ask it anyway because everyone has this question. How do you figure out even if it's not the exact but how do you even figure out ballpark how much a project is going to cost whether that be a subdivision, a new build, a renovation, to put these numbers into your feasibility at the start, how do you start getting an idea of these things? Because that's that's the, the hardest part, I think, one of the hardest parts.
1: The well, start. you're talking about the construction cost. The construction how cost. How do you figure out the construction that's cost? That's right. Right. Um, and here's the thing. I build at a different rate than you build at, mm. and each project is different because my trades are different. Mm. And so each trade would charge a different amount. So I can get a tiler for $200 a square metre. I can get a tiler for $100 a square metre. Wouldn't advise it, but you could probably get a tiler for forty dollars a square meter if you go to service seeking. Yeah, mm. um, you might need to redo that tiling, so it costs more <laughs> in the end. But you know, you you have these varieties of different ways, and so you can see that on the Facebook groups as well. Oh, I did my kitchen for under ten grand. I'm like, yeah, you did, and you've painted it, and it looks great, and you've changed some hardware, and you know, it depends on what product you're trying to hit and then you need to do the research. Mm-hmm. So there's no easy way. What it costs to build you know, in some of the higher end suburbs, yeah, they've got a tax on them. The builders that go there know that you've got more money or assume, mm-hmm. don't know. They assume that you've got more money and they will put a tax on working in there and they will all do it. So it will cost you more. Um, and the way that I
2: approached this because I had the same question to Rebecca <laughs> when I was doing the subdivision and the, the, the answer was, well, it depends. But um, I also approached other people who were in the community who had done similar projects. And that's, again, like yeah. ne- a network that I had. And I said, well, what per square metre rate did you build to? Knowing that that wasn't a guarantee, but it was at least a benchmark. But it's it's very challenging to figure this out at the start if you you don't have um, other people doing it to tap into. Yeah,
1: you have to use square metre rates. So we use ballpark square metre rates when we're doing our feasibilities um, and we need to check them against people that can build in that area. And that's, you know, actually contacting builders and actually doing your due diligence and saying, well, if I'm going to build in this suburb, do some work. You know, if you know you're going to build there, work out who is building in that area that you would want to build. It's pretty simple to work out who's building in that area. Go for a drive, mm-hmm. right? And you'll yeah. see put people their, at different... Put their signs yeah. up and give them a call. And you'll see, you know, straight away you're getting a lot of input. You're getting inputs on what type of site are they running? How fast is it moving?
2: Who's on site? How <laughs> clean
1: is it, right? Does it look like a dog's breakfast? Is it moving quickly? Are and they doing townhouses? Them, are they doing... You can call real estate agents
2: in that area as well and say, you know, I've seen these developments sell recently. Who was the builder? And in mm-hmm. many cases they're... They'll just pass the details along, have a chat to them. Mm. Mm. I was going to ask,
0: so imagine someone that's uh, doing a renovation as opposed to a development. Yeah. And you mentioned before there's like tension between the interior designer and like the trades or say a carpenter who says like that can't, like that's...
1: There could be, yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, And you have this all the time, right? Like on a building site, the builder's always blaming the engineer, engineers blaming the builder, builders blaming the plumber. Everyone's like blaming each other for the same things, Mm -hmm. right? Because they all see things for a different lens. If you're just doing, say, like an interior renovation, so it's not like adding on and things and whatever, yeah. Who would be the person that you go to first? Like, if you weren't who for the you design, are, just for just so you want to get a project done, you want to renovate this house, but I don't know where to go. I'm thinking, do I go to an interior designer to get the inspiration or a first, or, an or do architect? I go to an uh, yeah draft person, or do I go to a carpenter first?
1: Okay, well, so let's break that down. So I want to do an interior renovation, and I'm going to replace carpets, going to paint, and maybe do a kitchen. Yeah. Yeah? So I don't need a builder for that. Yeah. I could use one, but I don't need a builder for that. I can use a kitchen company that does effectively do the building. I can do the carpet myself. I can do the paint myself. So a really good place to start is understand your scope of works. So actually break it down and it's not that hard. People just want answers, but they won't put effort in. (laughs) If if that's you, just put some effort in, guys. It's not that hard. Um, And you're basically going, okay, well, I'm replacing carpet to four rooms. How many square metres of carpet is that? Let's jump on Google, work out how much it costs to buy a carpet that you like and input that value, Mm. right? So this isn't hard stuff, but it starts to break down cost and it starts to give you an idea of scope, yeah? And then you want to paint. You can do the same thing. There's calculators that will tell you how much to paint. If you want help with the design of that, that's a different thing. That's kind of going, do I go to – and, you know, this is where it's annoying to speak to me because there are so many different ways to to approach this cat, yeah, yeah, you know, like yeah. to do the same thing. And I think it's appropriate for so many of them. So you could go to an interior designer – You could go to a drafts person, you could go to an architect and get three very different products. Um, You could potentially get three very similar products, but they're all going to have their look and feel, or you can manage that yourself and you could understand what you're asking for and be able to draw something up. Like drawings and understanding what, Depends where your skill set is. Well, and it also depends on you
2: weighing up your skills versus your cost versus your time because mm-hmm. as soon as you add extra layers of professionals, you're, you're paying more. Mm-hmm. With my first two projects, I project manage, I interior design, but my the amount of time and effort and stress and energy <laughs> that went into that was a lot. Mm-hmm. And also I made mistakes, which did cost me in the end. And then the project I've currently got, I've engaged a drafts person. Mm-hmm. And I've engaged an interior designer as well because it makes sense for me on this one. But I was trying to save costs mm. on the other ones. But there's there's a um, non-dollar a draftsperson person on your current one. Did I need one? No, you did. I did you actually did need one because you needed to go through a council. So I did Yes, I did. But also, it was as a, a small extension as yeah. well onto the side. But I didn't need an interior designer. I chose, no, you didn't. No, but chose you chose it on.
1: because you wanted a certain look and feel which was far um, beyond my scope of expertise (laughs) yeah and you know like when you hire someone that can go well or not well it's you you're hiring someone based on what you hope they can achieve you don't it's not like you walk in and you say I want to buy this car and you get that car you are saying I want to buy a car that is red and suits me and is amazing and goes really fast you know and then hope that they can design and create something that fits your you know budget and your Scope. So the, the key to getting those relationships right is to really understand your scope first and to understand what you are trying to get out of that and make sure that person has a good fit. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? So yeah, yeah. And cross-check their previous work and reference right. check. And- if you love what they've produced previously, there's a good chance you're going to love what they're going to produce. I think one of the problems with the design industry is people go oh no I design whatever my client wants you've got it like they have a look and feel that they're kind of in- introducing into it as mm-hmm. well so you need someone that has that kind of understands innately what you think and is beautiful when it comes to design design to your budget too I think that's oh, a challenging that's your management that's, that's your- how you
2: yeah, yeah, manage it. Exactly. So you do need to have an understanding. Well, most people will have a budget when they go into it, but then ensure that their uh, designers, whether that be an interior designer or a drafty, whoever it is, is is trying to adhere to that budget and work to that budget. And sometimes that can be challenging because an architect isn't a builder and they don't know how much things yeah. are going to cost, even though I do, I do see a lot of people go into it saying, well, I've given my architect a, a budget and yet, they've created this product, which
1: I now can't afford to build. But that's a management that, issue. That, that is a, a management, management issue. issue. Every but time they also... want to push it on the architect, <laughs> but it's what you're asking the architect for. Well, that's right. And how much of that input you're getting from them? So I see this both ways, and I guess because I'm impartial, I guess. You, I, I okay. So, firstly, I don't build for other people, so I'm, I don't have any skin in that. But also, I'm helping people navigate this all the time, so. There's two sides to this story. There's a person who goes to the architect and says, I want this, and I don't know what my budget is. It could be this, but I guess I could stretch for more. And then they keep saying, I want this, I want this, I want this. And the architect says, this is more, this is more, this is more. And they go, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, I can go. But they're not picturing this is more, yeah. right? So the architect does need to lo- lead that scoping and that, that understanding of cost, but also people need to be honest with their design team and say, look, this is my budget. Mm -hmm. Um, Right or wrong, this is my budget. I would like it to hit here, I have here, and that needs to incorporate all of my design fees and all of my council fees. Because also, if I go to an architect and say, I have $500,000 to do a renovation or a build, I might only have 320. To actually do the work, the construction, because the architect I've engaged is eighty thousand dollars, and then yeah. I've got to get um, got the permits, and, and then yeah. I've got the interest. Mm. Well, normally people won't factor in the interest mm. repayments unless it's a renovate for profit. Yeah. If it's your own home, well, you know, but, that but you might anyway. have, yeah, you might have to move out, mm. so you might have to um, rent, and so all of these things will come out. You've got engineering, you've got, but also ultimately an
2: architect. And a drafts person, if you say I want to add this on, um, they might know the ma- they will know the material cost, but they won't necessarily know the labor cost as well. So they can't say to you you change you have this variation or you have this change in your design and it's going to cost you an extra twenty or thousand twenty or thirty. They can give you ballpark, but this is where you can end up with a design or a product which is much more expensive than what your budget is, and then you have to change it later on, and that that's mm. more cost. So
0: would. Say if you were a builder who built for other people, standard residential builder, right? Yeah. And I'm a client, and I don't know where to start. Would I, could I come to you and say this is what I'm thinking? Then you might come out to my house, we have a coffee, and go over what I've drawn up, and then mm-hmm. you take that and you find a drafts person that you work with that might could, be suitable yep. and do all that.
1: Yep. yep. Yeah, you can. So this is where again, this is another way of managing it, and you can get a builder on really early. You don't even have to use the builder's drafts person and team, you might use your own team but get a builder early on to give you an indication and certainty of cost. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a good way of running a project as well. Now, what's the issue with that? The issue with that is you've got one builder that you've engaged up front. Now, I think you should pay that builder, frankly. Oh yeah, I think so going to ask... It's a lot of work. Yeah, it's a lot of work. Like quoting... People will often kind of call me or they'll say, oh, no, not people inside our network, but sometimes I get these phone calls. And then people will say, oh, I send it out to a builder and like they didn't even quote it. I'm like, well, that's like 40 hours to mm. quote it. Mm. Or they wanted an indication of how much money I thought it was going to be before they bothered. I'm like, yeah, because that's like 40 hours of their life that they're not going to get back giving you a quote it's tedious um so if you engage a builder up front you can then get them through that process to say well you know yes you want this on a slab but you're putting timber floorboards over the top of it so why don't you do a lightweight substructure or you know and
2: Mm. you
1: know that might save you twenty thousand dollars and it's a lot quicker so a slab might take you know 30 days 45 days by the time you you know put in all the the pipe work and set everything out and to do, you know, stumps is only going to cost you like 14 days, right? So yeah. you've got, you can see the labour. So they can be involved in cost and management the materials. from the very beginning. Exactly. Mm. And these are costs you don't see. No. So mm. some of these cost us in things you don't see. Another one's an engineer, right? So often people will go, oh, I've got this great engineer. He's really cheap. I'm like, is he? Because that's a really heavy structure that they've designed for you. So you might have saved 500 bucks there and you're spending an extra 20 grand in steel work. We had a project where we did, we, we, we use the engineer that the
2: architect had recommended. And when it came time to build, the builder said, this is over-engineered. You're paying an extra 40 grand in steel and not getting any extra benefit in terms of the design or anything. And we had no idea, no idea at the very beginning. So yeah. th- there's all these little checkpoints along the way where a builder getting them in early, but getting them in early can also mean that they're not necessarily going to be the most competitive on price rather than getting a couple of quotes later on. So there's pros and cons, mm. but yeah. you could still save depends more on by the getting them in. Yeah, the I think
1: as well. So it depends how you want to run that project. So you could use a cost plus Project, um, which is basically what it cost plus a margin. Which is what um, I'm doing for my current what renovation. What you're doing for your current renovation now. It needs to be over a million dollars as a new build or it needs to be a renovation where you can't quantify because obviously renovations are really tricky because once you get in there, you start knocking things about and then you've got different times and... And budget, So often a cost plus can be an easier way to do it because they're not allowing for all of these extras. But it also means before I start, I actually have no certainty on price. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And the bank doesn't like it. So if you need to borrow for construction finance, that could be tricky. So everything's kind of circular, <laughs> I guess, is the problem. So there's no yeah. one set way. And there's, it's very circular because I can go forward this way and then I can go back and I can change my mind. I can get the engineering drawings and then go back and get them redone when someone tells me. So I guess the strategy, if we're talking about renovating for profit or developing or even doing our own house, is to understand that process from the beginning. So you don't make all these missteps, but you can check along the way what you're looking at because sometimes you're far too close to the project to be able to see the wood through the trees. Mm-hmm. Does that makes sense? It's kind of Absolutely. like you get design overwhelm and you're like, I just can't, I just actually, I don't even care anymore. Mm. Just get this built.
0: Mm. <laughs> um, we, had, we had one question that came through from the community which we wanted to put to you and it's more to do with what's going on in the news with a lot of developers going bankrupt and mm-hmm. a lot of people are pretty fearful right now to develop or build even
1: mm-hmm. because
0: they're thinking, oh, I don't know if this build is going to go under. Yeah. Right. Can you talk us through how you just think about that generally?
1: Yeah, and it's really tricky, right? So some of the bigger players have, and they, they have over the last, you know, for as long as I've been building, I was involved in a a builder going under that I had on two projects. One of them was 96 Apartments in Elizabeth yeah. Street and another, yeah. you know, so it was a really tricky thing. And actually the builder went under, but then a lot of the subcontractors yeah. then went under because they, they don't get paid their money. They've got materials to site and they're not big guys sometimes or can carry big um, loads. Okay, so what do we think about it? So we basically need to work through the trust and the amount of projects that this builder has on. Bigger builders can be, you know, look better on paper, but they're not necessarily going to play out as a better in the market when the market turns. Because they're working um, off smaller margins. They're working off smaller margins, yeah. like the and and a lot of the people in this latest one, right? So I can't even think how many Porter people Davis. Porter Davis, how many people were caught up in that. Um, but then they're coming, you know. I had a lot of calls, and you know, people in our community as well, because they would have been someone you would think to trust, mm. right? The issue then is because their quotes and the amount they were building for as a volume builder was quite low, to then get that same thing built. So I looked at one that was costing someone, uh, I think, $470,000 for this build. I'm like, that's 800000 There's yeah. just no way. You can't, like, we wouldn't be able to do that for under $800,000 because of the, you know, and just using a basic formula and looking at the level of finishes, we're like, it's, so she couldn't find someone then to go in and do that build for that amount so how do you how do you secure against it you probably don't you make sure that when you do your payments you have a pretty good understanding of the company you know how many projects they've got on you can look at their financials you've got domestic building insurance they do but that doesn't really protect you very well um a little bit, although
2: some people caught up in Porter Davis, they didn't even have that because they no. had said that they'd organised it, they'd not organised it, but they wouldn't have known because if you don't know the process going Well, they into were this, shown a document.
1: They were shown a document that was um, mm. in in this, I'll give it this specific case, they were shown a document which was the type of document that they would have got for their project so they thought they had it and wow. it was pretty um, standard and is actually pretty standard in the industry that you only take out that building insurance when you're about to start the project. That's because the contracts can be signed six months beforehand. Now, technically, you cannot sign that contract unless you've got that building insurance. And you have to tick a box to say that you've got that building insurance. So building insurance there, but we want to avoid that. Mm. yeah. And so paying more doesn't avoid it. Paying less doesn't avoid it. So what avoids it is... I guess, luck being one of them. Mm. But B, you've got to just go through and understand how many projects these people have on. Are they building quickly? Builders that are building really, really slowly often have cash flow problems. Yeah, does that make sense? It's Mm. like they can't, they're kind of staggering their work so they get to the next point. They're getting drawdowns to pay for the next project and they're moving that money across different projects. So watch out for that. Have a look at how many they've got on, how quickly they're going. How long they said they were going to build for. So we've got a couple of people where their builders have underquoted their work. Now what do they do? Well, They're kind a, of staggering like their way yeah. till the end. Well, in
2: my this is really tricky because in my current build situation, and I'm I'm almost I'm at lock-up stage with my dual occupancy at the moment. I've had a great experience with that builder so far. And I got three quotes at the very beginning, and he was 20% cheaper than the other two quotes. And I had so many people tell me don't use him. What if he goes bankrupt? What if he's not making enough money on this? And I said, what do you want me to do? Ask him to charge me more. But I reference checked him and I checked his projects. I spoke to a lot of people who had used him. He's got his own skin in the game doing his own similar projects. And that gave me a lot of comfort. That he was
0: doing his own as well? That
2: he was doing his own and he was building these products and he was building them within an appropriate time frame as well and I also said point blank to him how much are you making out of this project because I wanted to make sure that it was worthwhile for him mm. as well and he told me he's very upfront oh, this and then one it of a gave...
1: few industries where as a client we think it's okay to ask someone what profit margin they're <laughs> making which you, you know you can't do when you're buying a t-shirt or you know a necklace or something like that mm. but
2: but that was that was a unique situation in that cheapest is sometimes risky but not always if you've then done the other appropriate reference checks. So it's, yeah, you're right. Ultimately in this, Mm -hmm. you can do all of your research, but it is an element of luck because you can't control that builder and their cash flows and their business management skills and also the costs going up. And that's why builders have gone bust recently because they've committed to contracts worth X and the build has cost Y and then there's no profit left or there. Behind, mm. and yeah. if
1: you are in it, like one of the the things you've got to think about is, well, if that builder's underquoted to me and I can't get them through the end of that build, it's going to cost me so much more to get someone else in. So how do I manage that builder to the end of this project just to get it done? Mm. You're not kind of going, oh, well, the contract said this, so I can walk away. You're kind of going, well, I just need to get it done. So yeah. you you know you're paying trades directly rather than you know yeah. like you you're really taking steps to get through. If you um, can, yeah. It's not specifically helpful, but I think it's really just understanding timelines projects and capital, right? Okay. So you need to know how much capital they've really got.
0: So one of the things might be like knowing when the payments are released to the builder, like based on completion and those types of things to protect yourself?
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's a contract yeah. um, issue and you should always be looking at that. There are standards in most of the contracts that um we would build to so if they're varied from the standard i would look at that as well as builders we are actually also cash flowing a lot of the projects yeah as well so that's tricky because you know you outlay a lot of money and then you're waiting to get paid, and then you outlay a lot of money and then you're waiting to get paid. And then people think the builders make a huge margin, but they really don't. Yeah, it's, a um, risky business. it's a really risky business. And that's why I don't like building for other people. It's like their perception because this is so much money and we've got to appreciate that it is a lot of money. You're building your own home, right? And you've saved and you've dreamt of this house for years. And mm. this home that you're about to build is your one chance to get it right. Yeah, Mm. this is most people's situation. And for you to go over $5,000, people are like, oh, it's $5,000 on a build. Yeah, but what have you got to do to work and save another $5,000? Like, let's be respectful of the cost of everything on top of the fact that you're building and you're in a stressful time. This is why it's stressful. Um, So yeah, paying an extra 20% because, oh, you know, obviously it must cost more is, normally not what someone's going to do
0: yeah yeah well this has been uh very enlightening (laughs) and it's easy to see why (laughs) we could
2: keep talking yeah
0: (laughs) for those who lack the context i think over a hundred thousand people follow you on instagram alone so um it's easy to see why so many people um join uh, as members and uh and be part of the Facebook group and get help, and the collective around yeah. that is amazing. So, and there's the courses online, podcast, so much that you do to help educate people, and we really appreciate that. Just at large, but um, there'll be links in the show notes for people that want to get yeah. in contact and, and join the groups and take part in what you offer, as well as the free resources you mentioned. But is there anywhere in particular, other than those things, that you, where you would send someone as like a first point of contact?
1: Yeah, so depending on what you want to do, there's a free call that you can do. So in oh, freebies as well, you can book in a 20-minute consult if you're doing your own home and kind of ask for some advice. And if you want to renovate and develop for profit, we do have a community around that. It is um, it is invitation only and we do check, you know, we're going to check what, I guess, who you are and what you're doing and see whether it's appropriate for you. Um, but, you know, there's some webinars on that and then you can also book a call to do that and it's a pretty I'd say it's a pretty fun way of life Mm -hmm. and it's exciting and creative and so whilst we've just outlined all the risks and all (laughs) the stuff that could possibly go wrong understand (laughs) that you are not working nine to five for someone else you get to make a whole heap of money it's creative it's free if you do it right (laughs) if you do it right and you know it's it's really exciting. It's a really fun thing to do for you and your family because you're creating generational wealth and future. So, yeah, we And with, to be surrounded by other people that <laughs> yeah. are enjoying it as well. That's what I particularly...
2: Good ideas yeah. and all this type of
0: stuff. Yeah, That's yeah. Great. Inspiring. Yeah. yeah, great. Well, Rebecca, we really do appreciate you taking the time to come and join us in the studio away from the farm. Uh, away from the business. I also live in the city. I'm doing a project
1: in the city. I'm just just country life vineyard as (laughs) well. (laughs) Living the dream, as they say. Well thank you.
0: Thank you for giving a glimpse into your world and what you think about. We we do really appreciate you joining Amy and I.
1: Thanks for having me. Thank Thank you. you. Thanks Thanks.
0: Owen.
2: Thanks, Amy. Always a pleasure. Thanks.